This is the third in a series of messages that we're calling normal. Sharing Jesus without being weird. Because we've acknowledged something, we've gone ahead and spoken, spoken it out loud, something that we've all felt, something we all have known, and that is that evangelism has the potential to be awkward, <laughs> abnormal, weird, right? For both the person who's sharing their faith and the person with whom faith is being shared. Now, in the, the uh, Christian tradition that I grew up in, that I was raised in, uh, when little boys were about 10 years old, they began to teach us uh, evangelism. I'm not sure why they didn't teach little girls, but it was little boys, about 10 years old. And, and we began to learn all kinds of great things, things that 10-year-old boys really want to do, like door-to-door -door evangelism, right? Like going and knocking on a complete stranger's door, and when they open it, asking them if they know about Jesus. And you might imagine we were all chomping at the bit to get out there and knock on those doors. But that was better. You wanted to be on the door-to-door -door crew. You didn't want to be on the street corner preaching crew. You know what I mean? But then we were taught some other tactics and techniques. It was like um, if you were using gospel tracks, one uh, favorite technique was to leave them in places where they couldn't be missed, like on the back of a urinal in a public restroom. You know, maybe that's why girls weren't involved. I'm not... Uh, could be. But one of the worst... You might have seen something like this, similar to this, maybe. This looks like a wad of cash, right? Who knows what you were supposed to do with this? You, when you ate in a restaurant, you left this. Now, <laughs> if you were a cheapskate, you left this in place of a tip. Okay? That won a lot of people to the Lord. Oh, boy, look at that big, oh, it's a gospel track. Don't you know that was very effective? See, some of you have done it. <laughs> Listen, if you want to do this, go ahead. But make sure you tip 25 or 30 percent. That'll make more of an impression than this. You see what I'm saying? There's some weird stuff. Some awkward kind of stuff out there. But is there a different way to do it? I mean, really, is there a way to share Jesus with other people that's normal? You know, not weird. Well, I think so. And so in this series, I, I, I want to motivate us to begin to do whatever it is we need to do to see other people brought to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and do it in a way that's natural, normal. A lot of what we call evangelism in the church is not found in the Bible. I mean, I look in the Bible, I don't see any big crusades, stadiums filled with people. I don't recall anybody going around handing out gospel tracts, and obviously there's no Christian media of any kind. Now, are those things bad? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Don't leave here saying what I did not say. There's nothing wrong with those things. There are some number of people who come to faith in Christ because of those means, because of those ways. But here's what we've seen so far in this uh, series of messages. We've seen that, that while salvation is an event, 
It happens in a specific place and time. And, and some of us remember that. We remember the date. We remember the place where we were when we got saved. We learned that salvation is an event, but evangelism is a what? It's a process. It's a process. And God uses people in that process to help unbelievers move along in their journey toward God. And we've seen that God is calling us to do a couple things. He's calling us to understand where our unbelieving friends are. In other words, where in that process might they be? And we do that by understanding what their questions are. What are they asking questions about? What, what are issues for them or red flags? What are obstacles that they just can't seem to get past? That can help us understand wh where they are. And then, too, we help them move along in the process by committing ourselves to, to letting God use us any way he wants to in their lives to help them take their next step until they reach the point where they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Last week, we were talking about the importance of building relationships with unbelievers. And we kind of flew by a very important point that I want to make sure we get our heads around. In fact, I think it's so important I put it in your message notes. It's going to be up on the screen if it's not already. See, that's behind me. I can't see what's up there, right? They can put anything up there, and I'd just say, I wouldn't even know. But here, here's that important point. 80% of people who come to faith in Christ do so because of the influence of a friend or family member. Last week I had you raise your hand. If there was a significant person in your life who influenced you toward faith in Christ, we hit or exceeded this 80%. Both services last week. 80% of people who come to faith in Christ do so not because they went to a crusade, not because they watched a, a, a preacher on TV, not because somebody gave them a gospel tract, but because a friend was influential in their life. Now, here's what that means. That means that that co-worker who's not a believer, that neighbor, that classmate, that friend who's not a believer will most likely never come to faith in Christ unless a believing friend or family member builds a relationship with them and makes a commitment to see them through the process. Because they're very unlikely to turn on the TV and say, you know what I'd really like to watch right now? Let's see, there's sports on and there's movie channels and um, there's, uh, you know, the reality shows are on, the pawn stars are on or whatever. Uh, but you know what I'd really like to watch? Preaching. That just doesn't happen very much with our unbelieving friends, does it? Our unbelieving friends are not sitting up on Saturday night saying, uh, gosh, you know what? Whew, worked all week, been busy today. What I'd really like to do in the morning is not sleep in, but get up and, and, and get you know, dressed and, and, and get the kids ready and go to church somewhere. Very unlikely that that's going to happen. They're not going to stumble into a church by themselves and hear a sermon and become a Christian. They will most likely never come to faith in Christ unless a believing friend or family member makes a commitment to be involved in their life, build a relationship, makes a commitment to seeing them, walking with them through the process. So today we're going to focus not so much at the beginning, but more toward the end, the other end. You might remember last week we said, uh, there comes a point where we have to say something 
There comes a point in that process where our fr- uh, with, uh, that our friend is going through uh, where our unbelieving friends need to hear and understand the gospel. So this morning, I want to help us answer two questions. Two questions that will help us share the gospel with our unbelieving uh, friends and family members. Here's the first one. What do our unbelieving friends need to know? What are the basics? What do they need to know in order to move forward? And then what do our unbelieving friends need to do? What do they need to know and what do they need to do? I've left you ample room to take notes. You're going to have to today if you want to follow along. The answer to those two questions is so critical because let's be honest, most of our unbelieving friends think they already know what they need to know and what they need to do. They say, well, you know, if I was going to become a Christian, I'd, I'd have to try to be a good person. And I'd have to modify my behavior. Uh, and I would need to stop doing bad stuff and start doing good stuff. But that's not the message of the gospel. Some unbelievers think that what we're after is getting them to just pray a prayer, right? Here, read these words off the back of this pamphlet and your life will magically transform. But that's not the message of the gospel. Other people think we're asking for some kind of commitment, some kind of determined commitment, some kind of promise, or we're asking them to to give up something or take on something. But that's not the message of the gospel. And it's no wonder that our unbelieving friends are confused. I mean, we made them that way. They go to church and they hear, you've got to do these steps in this order. And then some guy knocks on their door and goes, no, 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 you've got to do those steps in that order. And then some friend at work says, what? No, you have to do it like this. And to me, it's a miracle that anybody ever gets saved. And it's so important that we send a clear and consistent message. And we can get there by being prepared to answer those two questions. What do our unbelieving friends need to know and what do they need to do? And there's probably, in the scripture, there's probably no better place where these questions are answered for us than in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You got your Bible and you want to turn over there. First Corinthians 15 is part of a letter that Paul wrote to the Christians at Corinth. And if you've read it, you know that they were, they were pretty messed up. I mean, they were, they were just all kinds of wrong. There was some very strange, very sinful things that were going on in Corinth. And, and they were struggling in their walk with the Lord. And let me, let me illustrate how extensive that was. For you, they had, among other things, they had uh, a stepson who was basically involved in a physical, sexual relationship with his stepmother. And everybody was kind of okay with that. Nobody was saying, standing up and saying, wait a second, this is wrong, you shouldn't do that. You say, well, uh, that sounds like today. Yeah, because we're not supposed to judge, right? Paul said, you got to take care of this. That was just one of the items. There was so much going on there that Paul wrote more to the Corinthians than he wrote to any other church. He wrote two books, 29 chapters, six times more, or five times more than he wrote to any other church that he wrote a letter to. They were messed up. There are some scholars that believe there's a third book or a third letter to the Corinthians that we don't have in our Bible today. 
So they were messed up people. But I want you to note something. Make sure you understand this. Paul never doubts their salvation. Were they capable of being messed up? Sure they were. Were they capable of being involved in, 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 in sin, in sinful activities? Yes, but Paul never doubts their salvation. In fact, he addresses them in both books. He addresses them as saints. He calls them the holy ones of God. He uses that same word that we translate saint. But he's concerned about their walk. And so to help them out, he lays down some basics of the faith. He's reminding them of some things they've already been taught. And we want to pick up in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. Now, I, want to, I don't want to get off on a rant here. <clears throat> But contrary to what a lot of people believe and what a lot of people think, God is not in the bad news business. Boy, I'm glad the people need to hear that one here. They'd have been running up and down the road, screaming, waving their hands in the air, throwing babies in the air, falling over. Mass chaos. God's not in the bad news business. we got to get that. God's in the good news business. The strangest critique I've ever had of my preaching was that I didn't preach enough about bad stuff. That I don't focus enough on sin. Sorry, I'd rather focus on Jesus. We sang a song a few minutes ago. Oh, how he loves us. And you know that song makes some of us uncomfortable, doesn't it? And then, then Chad like completely came out of the left field and said, you know what, now we're going to make it personal. And you're going to sing, How He Loves Me. And I saw people go, Hoo. Do you know, you know that line in that song that said, Heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss? Let me blow your mind. The original lyric, not the one that, um, what's his name? Crowder. Not the one that Crowder recorded, but the guy that wrote the song. He doesn't say heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss. He says heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. You want to be uncomfortable? Let's sing that one a time or two. <laughs> right? Or let's go down to Old First Church and sing that, that, that line one time. Some people don't feel like they've been to church unless the preacher beats them up. Stomps all over their feet. Scuffs them up bad. You know? Makes them ashamed. Makes them cry. I mean, in a bad way, not a good way. But God's in the good news business. That's what gospel means. Good news. In Paul's day, in Jesus' day, if someone, up, someone came up to you and said, I got some gospel for you. It meant they had good news. They were going to tell you something that you were going to be happy to hear. The gospel means good news. Paul said, I want to remind you about that good news. You need to be reminded of it. But especially here in 1 Corinthians, I mean, this is down near the end of the book. And he's been beating on them for 14 chapters. You're doing this wrong. You're doing this wrong. Do this this way. Correct this. Take care of this. Change that. But you know what? I need to remind you that the good news is what you've heard. The good news is what was preached to you. Going on in verse 1. You welcomed it then. And you still stand firm in it. 
it is, into verse 2, it is this good news that saves you. The good news saves us. The good news saves us. Okay. And then Paul says something that can be confusing if we're not careful. Second part of verse 2. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. Now, it sounds like he might be doubting their salvation. But remember, he's already called them saints. He's already called them the holy ones of God. So we've got we to gotta look at this verse through those glasses. What Paul is saying here is, if you're not staying true, it's because you didn't believe the right thing in the first place. If you're, it's kind of like John says in 1 John, we know they were not of us because they went out from us. Because they went out from us, we know they were not of us. Paul, Paul says if, if, if you're wandering away, if you're straying from the faith, it's because you didn't believe the right message in the first place. That's why it's critical that we communicate a clear, consistent message. Then comes some very important stuff, verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. That's the first point of the message of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Say it with me. Christ died for our sins. Tomorrow, if someone comes up with you, comes up to you and says, Well, what's the gospel? You can at least say, I tell you the first point. Christ died for our sins. Look at verse 4, first part. He was buried. Now, what Paul has done here is he's given us a point and a proof. Christ died for our sins. That's the point. And then what's the proof? How do we know that Christ really died? He was buried. You know what that means? That means he didn't faint. He didn't pass out. He didn't fall asleep. He died and was buried. Back in those days, to prepare a dead body for burial, they uh, covered it in ointment. They packed it in somewhere between 100 and 150 pounds of spices, and then they wrapped it tightly in cloth from head to toe. If you weren't dead at the beginning of the process, you would be by the time they got done. So Paul is making a major statement here. Not only did Christ die, he was buried. He was because he was dead. The point is Christ died for our sins and the proof is he was buried. Now pick up again in verse 4. And he was raised from the dead on the third day. Just as the scripture said, he was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. There's the second point of the gospel. He was raised from the dead. The gospel message is very simple. Christ died for our sins and he was raised from the dead. Repeat that after me. Christ died for our sins and he was raised from the dead. Christ died for our sins. How do we know? He was buried and he was raised from the dead. And how do we know that? He was seen. I love verse 6. After that, 
He was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. <laughs> See, what Paul's talking about is not just a couple of people. You know, when one of them says, I was walking through Jerusalem the other day, and in this crowd of people, I saw somebody, and man, it looked like Jesus. I thought it might be Jesus. And the other person said, well, you know what? One day I was out downtown, and, and I thought I saw Jesus too. No, that's not what he's talking about. Paul says 500 people saw him. 500 people. That means it wasn't an, an, an illusion. It wasn't a hallucination. In fact, Paul says, most of them are still alive. Paul writes this book about 25 years after Jesus' crucifixion. So, you know, it's not like he was saying, well, you know, this happened 100 years ago, and, and all the people who saw him are dead, so you don't go bother checking up. You don't need to, to check up on that at all. No, he says, they're alive. Go to Jerusalem, and you can still meet them. You can still talk to them. Man, how far out on a limb does a guy have to be willing to go before we realize that what he's saying is true? You don't believe me? Go to Jerusalem. Most of those 500 people who saw him are still alive. Ask them. And then Paul says, I saw him. In verses 7 and 8. He was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, that just means Paul's saying, I, because I was very young, I also saw him. So here's the point. The gospel, the good news that we need to make clear to our unbelieving friends is very simple. Christ died on the cross and was buried. He was raised from the dead and was seen. Christ died on the cross for our sins and was buried. He was raised from the dead and was seen. So tomorrow when somebody walks up to you and says, what's the gospel? That's what you say. That's it. Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was raised from the dead and he was seen. It was witnessed. That's the message we have to make clear to our unbelieving friends. But you know what? Somebody says, hang on a second. <laughs> it's like those Geico commercials. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. That's not new news. That's not something I can share with somebody. And they'll say, wow, I never heard that before. Well, I wouldn't be too sure. I wouldn't be too sure. There was a time, sure enough, there was a time when you could be pretty sure that even people who never darkened the door of a church knew a little bit about the Bible. I mean, the scripture was so woven into the fabric of our culture that almost everybody had a general idea of the story of the Bible or the good book or whatever it was that they called it. They might have been fuzzy on some details, but overall they had a grasp of the scripture, but not so anymore. Not so anymore. According to recent research, only 26% of Americans said they read their Bible regularly. And 57% uh, and of that number defined regularly as four times a year or less. Yes, sir, read my Bible once a quarter. 
whether I have to or not, whether I need to or not. Oh, well, it's got to be better among churchgoers, right? Mm. Less than one in five churchgoers read their Bible every day. 19% of churchgoers read their Bible every day. So we can't assume that anybody knows anything about the Bible. And we certainly can't assume that they've got a handle on it, a correct handle on their knowledge of the Bible. Everything has changed, folks. And we can't keep doing things like we've always done them. Listen, it will never be 1954 ever again. We can't continue to do evangelism, church, outreach, even worship like they did in 1954 or 64 or 74. Buddy, I was right in the middle of 74, weren't you? That was a plaid stallion with my leisure suit. Big puffy, big puffy hair. But it'll never be 74 again. We can't assume anything. It's dangerous to assume. But, but there's a larger point. Remember, evangelism is a process. It, it's a process. And I'll bet you that a lot of us, that our testimonies would line up with what I'm about to say. A person may have heard the message of the gospel many times, but they almost always come to a point in their lives when they hear it as if they'd never heard it before. When all of a sudden, the light comes on, and they hear it in a, in a fresh way, and they say, oh, now I get it. Now I understand. Remember a couple weeks ago, Jesus told that story about the, the farmer planting seed. And the seed fell on all kinds of ground, but it only took root in what kind of soil? Fertile soil. There was seed, it was there all along, but it only took root in the soil that was prepared to receive it. We don't know when our unbelieving friends are going to be ready. So it's our responsibility to be ready all the time. That's what the scripture means when it says be ready. Be in season and out of season. Ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. We never know when that receptive moment will come. When our friends will say, hang on just a second. What's all this about? What's the big deal? That's not the time to start thinking about it. Right? That's not the time, the time to go, oh, okay, well, there's, um, there's uh, Genesis and, uh, and in the beginning and, you know, and then there's the New Testament and then Jesus and God said it was good. Wait, that's all back in the Old Testament. And, um, and, and so Jesus is coming back, but, well, because he came the first time. And that's not the time to start that mess. <laughs> That's the time when we make the message clear. Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. And he was seen. That's it. That's what they need to know. And so once they know what they need to know, what do they need to do? What do they need to, to do with that 
truth. Well, I'm going to tell you this. It's not about making promises. It's not about making commitments. It's not about trying to modify behavior. They need to trust Christ as Savior. Say that with me. They need to trust Christ as Savior. Trust is a pretty simple concept. Good old John 3.16. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, I want to make sure you see something. I want to make sure you see believes in. Believes in. Not um, pledges or promises or works for or trades for whoever believes in him. Now, this blew me away when I saw this. I can't believe I got to be this old and been reading the Bible this long and hadn't heard this. The two Greek words there, the word for believe and the word for in, believe in, those two words had never been used together in Greek literature until the New Testament was written. Because the Greeks didn't have a concept for belief in something. They only had the concept of belief about something, believing a fact, believing information. And so Jesus shows up, and he says the point is not believing information. The point is not believing that something is true. It's believing in someone. The point is believe in. And the the simplest English word we have to express that is the word trust. The way a person becomes a Christian is by believing in Christ and then placing their trust in him. At the end of the Gospel of John, he tells us why he wrote an account of the life of Jesus. It's in John 20, verse 31. He says, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. By believing in him, we have life. And then in John 8, 24, Jesus himself said, unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sin." See, the issue of becoming a Christian isn't begging or pleading or promising or trading or working to earn something. The issue is trust. What we want our unsaved friends to do is put their trust in Christ and in his death on the cross as payment for their sins. Ah, there it is. This is an ancient illustration. And if you've been around church world very long, chances are you've seen it dozens, if not hundreds of times. Is this trusting in the stool? Am I trusting in this stool right now? No. Because you can come along and kick it out of the way, and I'd, I'd be all right. I wouldn't fall over, right? So I'm not trusting in the stool if I do that. How about if I said stool? (laughs) 
I promise to take care of you. I'm going to make sure you're dusted and kept clean. I'm not going to let anybody sit on you. I commit my life to you, Stu. Is this trusting in the stool? What if I traveled all over the world and told people what a great stool this is? Is that trusting in the stool? What if I wrote a book about the stool? Huh? What if I wore a t-shirt with the stool's picture on? No. What if I told you I believe 100%? I'm 100% com faithful. I'm 100% sure that this stool will support my weight. Is that trusting in the stool? No. You know where I'm going. This is trusting in the stool. Right? Now this is really trusting in the stool. <laughs> in fact, if you had seen what I did to a bar stool at my mother-in-law's house a couple weeks ago, you would know how much I trust this little stool. We're talking, we're talking toothpicks, folks. <laughs> yeah, now, now I trust. Listen, what God wants our unbelieving friends to do, what, what he wants you and me to do, is to put all our weight on him. That's what it means to trust. At its most literal, at its most basic meaning in the original language, trust means to place all your weight on something. We put all our trust in Him. We say, God, if I, if I die right now, the only thing that's going to get me into heaven is Jesus. Not the work I did. Not the information I believe. Not the size of my Bible. The only thing that's going to get me into heaven is Jesus. Period. I'm not trusting in anything else. I'm completely trusting in His death on the cross as the sufficient payment for my sin. That's what our unbelieving friends need to do. Put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. What do they need to know? Christ died on the cross for our sins and was buried. He was raised from the dead and was seen. What do they need to do? They need to place their trust in Christ and His death on the cross. As the payment for their sins. So, so simple. And yet we complicate it, don't we? We make it into workbooks and seminars and 13-week study courses. And, and all that does is intimidate us. All that does is allow us to, to release ourselves from any responsibility. It's only for the special, for the chosen, for the, for the hired man. And the truth is, God is telling all of us to be ready because at some point in their journey along the process our unbelieving friends are going to ask us they're going to say to us hold up a second what's the deal with all this what's this all about what do you believe and you've got 10 seconds of their undivided attention and what do you say Christ died on the cross for our sins that means he he loves us. He rose from the dead. That means he's, he's powerful. And what God wants you to do is put your trust in his son and in his death on the cross for your sins. That's what you need to know, and that's what you need to do.
becoming a Christian is not about making a promise. It's about taking advantage of a promise. It's about becoming the beneficiary of a promise. It's not about giving something to God. It's about receiving something from Him. It's not about trading our good works and good deeds. It's about being given something free. It's not even about information in a book. It's about believing and trusting in a person. Jesus Christ and His death on the cross as payment for our sin. What a deal. What a great system. Everybody's invited. Everybody can become a Christian. And everybody gets in the same way. Everybody can pass the qualifications by trusting in Christ. How could we improve on that? Now I realize that I'm talking mainly to believers this morning. But I don't want to assume anything or take anything for granted. We just talked about that. And it could be that someone here today finds themselves still in that process of finding their way back to God. And maybe this morning while I was talking, the light switch got flipped for you. The light came on and you, you saw it. You understood the gospel maybe for the, for the first time. It wasn't the first time you, you heard it, but you heard it and you understood the good news. Now you need to know this. God did that. Not me. Not the person who invited you. It was God's work in your life. And what he wants you to do is put your trust in what you now understand. Put your trust in Christ's death on the cross as a payment for your sins. Maybe today God has, has brought you through this process. And today is your day of salvation. If you were to stand before God and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? There's only one correct answer. I put my trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.